it's a public health crisis. And because we know from people who do survive their attempts, we know that they often vacillate right up until the very moment that they attempt. So that indicates that these are deaths that we can do something about. Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about our collective mental health and where we make it easy to talk about the hard stuff. Nothing is off limits. After listening, you'll walk away smiling about the plight of being human and maybe even learn a bit about yourself. I'm your host, Joey Dumont. Let's dive into today's episode. I just want to thank you too for agreeing to come on to the show. I think we both have a similar mission, right, with our books. Uh, but I've had, and I don't know how you've fared. I don't know if you, well, you're not doing a podcast, but um, it's been difficult to get guests to come mm-hmm. on and talk. And obviously, part of that is like, hey, do you want to come on the show and talk about anxiety and depression? Yeah. They're like, yeah, no, I don't yeah. think that's, that's not the goal. Um, so thank you for that to of start course. with. And then I did want to just start with a little bit about this. I really enjoyed the book. Um, Thank you. For a lot of reasons. I think it was brave. I think it was well-written. Uh, I think as a therapist and a pastor and a co-sufferer, which, by the way, I've never seen um, mm. on a book. So that was cool. Um, you have a very different and unique perspective on the depression, um, specifically because I call it the depression, as my mom calls it that. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's kind of like, are you smoking the pot? Are you, are you drinking the booze? <laughs> you know, all, all of those pieces. The uh, pot. The pot. Yeah. So did where did you come up with the co-sufferer piece? Have you seen that before? No. Yeah, me neither. No. You know, I hadn't. And that was actually something, the kind of language around that. I can't remember. It somehow, I put it into a sentence somewhere. And I remember my editor saying, you know, that is something we're going to want to use as we describe, right? Yeah. Your perspective yeah. of who it is that that's writing this book and and just a, and which I thought was you know good a br- brilliant move on, on their part only because well for a couple of reasons but one I get you know messages now from people all over who who who've read the book and I and it touches my heart every time when someone will sign you know your fellow co-sufferer and then say their name. Yeah. And what I love about it is it's taking this thing, like you just said, you know, you ask people, do you want to come on and talk about depression and anxiety? And people are like, no, no, steer away. This thing that those of us who struggle with, which so often is done silently, the realization that not only do we not have to do it silently, but in fact, maybe we can find some camaraderie with one another and be able to say that actually because we've experienced this, that bonds us together. And maybe this isn't just a pure negative thing in our life. Maybe the depression, the anxiety offers us a unique experience to see the world and engage in the world and with one another in a way that other people who haven't had this pain can't do. And so I think that that was important. To back it up a little further, though, you know, I almost didn't do it. I I really thought about, and I think I mentioned this in the book, I say, you know, part of me wanted to write this book and just leave out the personal aspect to it. Sure. You know, I could talk and about my experiences working in the church. I could speak uh, on my credentials as a psychotherapist. But I just thought, I think that would be a less than helpful book. Um, I think that 
what people need right now, and at least for me, is not only some guidance, but also just more people that are willing to raise their hand and say, me too. Like, yeah, me too. And I'm not going to offer you an easy solution or panacea or tell you that I've got the secret formula for success. But I would like to say, I understand your pain, me too. And I want to highlight that the pervasiveness of these issues, but I also want to highlight how treatable they are. Well, thanks for that. I mean, that's the brave part about any of these stories, right? I think that as a clinical psychotherapist, you could have said, here's my purview. And then as a pastor, here's my purview and talk about those specific experiences. And I think there's a lot of those books because <laughs> I've yeah. read a lot of those books. I think that the neat thing for me and the reason I reached out to you online was because the title was really intriguing. Depression, anxiety, and other words we don't want to talk about is a big... My book originally was called Dirty Words mm. because those are the words we don't want to talk about. But then mm. my editors came up with a better name. Um, and that was the onus of what I was trying to do too, right? Is that, And I think that not only did you include yourself, you included yourself in very vulnerable stories. So you could have just glossed over some of it, but you started out the book with being under the influence of alcohol during a mass that you were actually presiding over, correct? Yes, correct. You want to just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Because obviously that was very difficult to share. And, yeah. as to, and after reading your book, I know how difficult it was for you and your family and being embarrassed and you know all the things that we've all felt. Um, yeah, yeah. Being, oh my gosh, it caused a great yeah. deal of pain. Um, yeah, I mean, looking back, it's like, um, I would say it's the, it was the worst experience of my life, which like a lot of other people who do the work can, you know, after some time, they can look at the worst experience of their life and look at it with gratitude. Yeah. Um, you know, and for a long time, that wasn't the case. I remember a few months after it happened, driving in the car with my wife and just bawling and saying, I've ruined our lives, you know, like I've ruined yeah. our lives, I've ruined our lives, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, what happened, you know, I, I got to a point when I was working as a priest where I had been, I'd suffered from depression and anxiety most of my life. But as I tell in the book, I, I didn't really seek treatment for that until my early 30s and experienced a great deal of, of healing. Um, but because these issues are chronic, they have to continue to be dealt with continually. It's not something that you do and then, haha, I'm finished, right? <laughs> all done. Now, yeah. all done. Now I can just treat my mind and my body however I'd like and, you know, then just assume everything is going to be okay. They have to be actively managed. And I got to a place in my career where I was striving to do too much. I was, you know, first and foremost, a husband and a father to two young boys. I was writing, doing all these sorts of things and just com completely burned out and really, really unhappy. And instead of being honest about that and making certain health decisions to, to step back, to slow down, to be more active in therapy, to drink less alcohol, I just numbed. I started reaching uh, for alcohol um, more or less for that just like, uh I'm, I get to the end of my day and I'm kind of mad about a lot of things. And yeah. if I just drink a little bit, I'll be like less mad and then I can kind of start over tomorrow, you know? And, yeah. and that became the cycle. And like a lot of folks, you know, with alcohol can get real progressive. And for me, I just got to a point where I just like, 
clearly looking back on it, I don't say it this way in the book, but I think it got to a point where I just like didn't care. Um, you know, I was willing to just, I didn't want to feel or think about certain things. And so I was taking, um, really, really unhealthy risks and doing wildly irresponsible and ultimately painful things like showing up to preside over mass and preach a sermon. Like I could barely stand up. Um, I mean, it's, 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 you're, you're pretty drunk. Yeah. 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 And then did someone come up to you and say, Ryan, um, we they pulled me. Yeah, yeah, just like me. Yeah, you're you're gone. Like I'm yeah. walking back. Um, I'm walking back. So in the Episcopal Church, if if you're familiar, it's like looks a lot like you know Roman Catholicism with the liturgy. So I've read the gospel and then I've preached the sermon, and now I'm walking back to go behind the altar to lead the congregation in the Nicene Creed, and it's an evening service. And so, which was a smaller service. And so I'm just doing the thing by myself. I have like a, like a helper, but not another priest. And all of a sudden there's another priest like standing there. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, what's he doing? And I'm just sort of ushered out the side <laughs> into what's called wow. the sacristy. And, um, that's where there are some people there. And I described the conversation that was like happening. you're slurring like, your speech. Right, that was one of the things. Yeah, there I just learned your speech. speech. They were, they were concerned. They thought yeah. that maybe I was having a stroke. Um, yeah, right. Or you know, a, a, a bad you know medication. They sure. they didn't know. Although I think right. they suspected because somebody then said, you know, have you been drinking? Uh, it was obvious that something was was amiss. Um, I clearly wasn't myself, um, and I wasn't you know. Um, uh, you know, engaged with the the service and performing my duties as they were accustomed to seeing me do. And so they knew something was wrong and, um, and uh, I denied it. Like, no, I mean, how stupid we're like in this small room. Like you can, you can smell alcohol. (laughs) You can't, you can't hide it. And, um, oh, but I was so angry, so defensive. So, um, so upset, right. That I, I stormed off. You know, I wouldn't even let someone drive me home. I drove home drunk. Oof. It was terrible. Yeah. Um, but that ultimately led to um, not wanting to deny it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the point? But then saying, okay, it's time. Uh, something has to change. And I've got to do some real work here because I'm, I'm pretty unhealthy. And is that then where, you know, everyone has a moment. Right. Uh, for me personally, and it sounds from your description of alcohol and how you've gone to AA and you went to rehab and all those pieces that you still have yet to identify when you, you, you talked about, um, when you go in and say, hi, I'm an alcoholic, I'm Ryan, I'm an alcoholic. And I went to AA meetings with my little brother, um, because I wanted to accompany him to see kind of how they were. And they said, you can't walk in this room unless you're an alcoholic. And I said, okay, yeah. <laughs> fine. I'm, I'm Joey and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, I'm an alcoholic. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't even a lie because it was, and the reason I'm sharing the story with you is I, I was in the ad business for the last 20 years and we, as an industry, drink a lot. So it was parties and conferences and dinner parties and hotels and, you know, penthouses and blah, blah, blah. And so I was yeah. always drinking. So I was like, you know, if you look up, you know, in the book, <laughs> like, what does it mean to be a drinker? It, my little brother drank copious amounts every single day until he was dead just all the time, raging alcoholic. Um, 
And so I, I'm not an alcoholic because I only have, you know, six cocktails at night right. when I'm hanging out with my buddies. And you're like, well, that by definition, Bill says yeah, <laughs> that, you, you that you're an alcoholic. Yeah. So I didn't have a problem with it, but I, I, I like you still don't, I don't identify that. I don't introduce myself as an addict or an, you know, an alcoholic. Um, even though I did fit the descriptor, yeah. you know, that I was reading and I had a similar experience, um, not at a church, but it was after my children were born. I have two little boys as well and they're two years apart. Um, oh, and great. I think at the time it was my buddy's engagement party and I'm not a scotch drinker, but he, we had this very fancy schmancy, uh, scotch bar. And so you know, like two months, you got to try it. Here's three fingers. Try this. It's 25 year old scotch or, you know, whatever the cool stuff was. And I was like, okay, so I'm drinking it. And I remember my wife was looking at me like, okay, you know, that's your third one. And it's been like an hour. You should probably yeah. slow down. Um, and we were going to her cousin's party for their little boy the next day. who was my son Kingston's age. And so she's like, you're going. So I don't care how much you drink, you're going tomorrow. And I was like, I'm great, babe. I'm fine. <laughs> and I just got hammered. And so I don't remember like getting home. We took an Uber home. I woke up at like 3.30 in the morning. You know that whole... You, know, like you just uh, wake up and you're like, oh shit, I don't know where I am. And yeah. then you realize, and then there's that tension in the room with your wife. Oh, like, it's the worst. Yeah. Like you suck. You know, she, she didn't say it, but she was not happy. And, and so then like three hours later, <clears throat> I remember waking up for the rest. I just couldn't sleep. There's so much anxiety rushing through my body. I was like, oh my God, I, what did I do? Yeah. Um, because I felt so bad. And then I talked to my wife and then I went back to sleep and had all these nightmares about bad stuff that I was doing. And I was, my brain was catastrophizing at that point. So I remember when my wife did wake up, I was like, babe, what did I do? She's like, and she knows that I have issues with depression and anxiety. And so she immediately said, babe, you didn't do anything. You just got drunk. Mm. And you said you didn't want to do that anymore. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Um, and you're going to this party. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I love your I, wife. Oh, she's great. And so then she took me to the party, like, and I remember getting there, and there's all these wonderful people, their cousins and friends and family and all that, and presents and children and squealing of kids, all the per and I'm just like, I'm going to die. Like oh, yeah. <laughs> the worst oh, yeah. hangover. And it wasn't just the physical, it was all of the mental, you know, they call it like hangxiety or freeze frame shaming or whatever was going on. And I just remember saying, babe, I can't do this. I'm so anxious right now that I can't communicate. So I, I went into Alex's room, this is a little three-year-old, and I curled up in his little race car bed. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I went to sleep. And, I, and that was it. And my wife came in like two hours later. She said, uh, babe, are you okay? And I said, no, mm -hmm. I'm not okay at all. And she said, do you want to go home? And I said, no, I'm cool. I said, but I am never drinking again. And she's like, wow. okay. <laughs> sure. And, and I never did. I never touched another drop of booze. After really? That. It was just done. I was like, I can't. Um, I used to be a martial artist and, and I had a bad temper and I had an upbringing that was less than optimal. So I had some issues around anger and ability to fight. And so like my nightmares were that I beat somebody up, you know, and that I was going to jail and I now have kids. And so I was like, oh man. And that's, you touch on something in your book too about self-love and the importance of self-love. Um, and without it, you can't love someone else, right? Mm -hmm. And that was kind of where I was like, oh, okay, I got to figure this out. And that's when, um, that was part, I even went to my therapist. I was seeing therapists at that point. 
and I told her, I said, I don't deserve this anymore. She's like, mm. Oh, thank you. Oh, <laughs> you, um, you know, yeah, you so didn't. I, I, yeah, I didn't deserve it anymore. I was like, I'm done with this level of abuse, right? I just, uh, I don't. The self-loathing has to go away because I do love myself enough to be in love with my wonderful wife and my little boys, and so that was the moment that hit me. And I know that from reading your book, that was a very similar thing. You know, you were talking, um, and I'm jumping around your book because my brain is it's great. You were reading, um, or you were watching Daniel Tiger with your kids, and I watched Daniel Tiger with my kids. <laughs> so I, I, I remember that vividly. Like, oh man, that was so cute, and they're so innocent. You know, and all the cartoons reflect on all the best things about the world, yeah. <laughs> love and friendship and parenting and, you know, and all of that. And I'm curious, George is the same thing. And you know, I really loved curious George. And I was jealous of the ye yellow man in the yellow hat because he had a penthouse in Manhattan. And then he, yeah, he had a good life place in he? the Berkshires. And, you know, he always had like a hang glider and all this cool stuff. Um, but I remember just thinking, okay, that's another reason I connected with you when I read your book, because, you know, you're obviously a younger man, but you have two little boys, just like I do, a very understanding wife. And then <laughs> you decide like, I have to go to therapy. I have to go to rehab. Yeah. That, that had to be one of the biggest heart-wrenching decisions of your life. Oh right? my gosh. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, game changer. Yeah. Like that's like, you have to be away from your family for a month and you have yeah. to tell people that you're a mess. Yeah. <laughs> and all of those, you know, insecure pieces crashing down on you at once. All of it. Yeah. yeah. It's this, it's this, um, and saying out loud, right? Like all, all like, at, at least at that time in my life, those struggles that I, that I were, ha was having were the most painful that I had ever been through and they were intimate and to do what I needed to do necessitated that I spend some time apart from my family, which not the end of the world, but very difficult, especially young yeah. boys, right? For, yeah. for that period of time. And it was going to be a semi-public kind of thing because of yes. my role in the community. It, it was like, everybody knows, yeah. right? What's happening. And so, um, there was that level of pride. I think that pride that like the, the, the evening that it happened, I'm like, this isn't even, this isn't even happening. You guys are crazy, you know, <laughs> to, to the next day, like, no, it happened. Right. right? So then being yeah. like, I'm and I need help. And added to that was like, in my mind, at least the way that I thought about myself back then, which was so wrong was that it's like, I'm supposed to be like this leader um, yeah. to a certain degree in the community. So like, I can't be the one, right, that's got this problem or, or yeah. these issues to this degree. And, and, and by going to a facility, like you're raising your hand and saying, Oh, yeah, no, I'm actually in pretty bad shape. Um, yeah. and right. And I need help. And it was gut wrenching. Um, and it was ultimately life giving. Yeah. Um, I really, I remember talking, um, after just being there for a few days with somebody. And I said, you know, in, in my religion, we talk a lot about like passing from like death to life, a lot of that resurrection, you know, imagery. Mm -hmm. And it, I said, it seems to me that resurrection appears to be happening like in this place, you know, and like in the church, like I didn't see it very much, but here I was beginning to see people um, go from illness to, to health. 
and in some ways literally passing, you know, from actively kind of choosing death, right, by avoidance of life through whatever, to saying, now I want to live again. And I, like you said to your therapist, which was so brilliant, I don't deserve this. What I deserve is to be loved and cared for. And I deserve to experience the abundance of this life. And so long as I'm intent on denying myself that and Mm -hmm. facing my actual feelings and my thoughts and my authentic self, right? Then I don't get to live. I'm, I'm choosing, I'm choosing death. And so it was really, really amazing. So, so, so heart wrenching, gut wrenching, but, um, ultimately that's why I look upon it with so much gratitude because it was the beginning of what I described as my second half of life. The opportunity to actually journey into the person that I want to be, um, versus living a more reactive life and taking yeah. life as it came at me. Just t- two totally different journeys. Well, and then owning up to it, like you mentioned when you got there, where you're in this very sterile environment, they're taking your, your temp, you know, you're taking your blood or taking your blood pressure and all these things every hour to make sure you're okay. Um, and you know, my little brother was in and out of rehab centers. Um, mm most of his life. And so I, you know, I would pick him up sometimes when I was home because he lived in Minnesota. And so when you were writing about how sterile that environment is and how scary it was to be in that bed by yourself, kind of like it was a combination of a prison and a hotel, I think you described it. Yeah, Um, yeah. And then also the pride, you know, that is bubbling up. I am not these people. (laughs) <laughs> right? They're far worse than I am and they've been here 20 times and they're yeah. drug addicts and they're, you know, they're worse off. So I don't right. know if I should be here. And then when you accepted that, right? I think the story that really culminated to that uh, transference for you uh, was when you were with the the tattooed ex-Satanist and the transgendered person, the three of you in the pew. Yeah. <laughs> With the church, and then you nodding, you know, along. And I think that the priest was like, okay, this guy gets this joke, man. Oh, yeah, totally. He knows this stuff, right? Yeah, he knows this Um, stuff. And then when you walked out and kind of mentioned that you're only there for a month or two, right? And then he said, well, why why are you only here for a month? Then you had all these machinations in your head about what I should say or maybe what I should avoid saying. (laughs) But that was a really neat moment for me in the book because you, you told him you were in a rehab center. The three of you are in a rehab center. You volunteered that. Um, and then you smiled really big as you walked <sighs> away. And I think that was such a neat moment because it's, it means you got it, mm. you know, and, and to your point, a lot of people are repeat visitors in those places. My little brother oh, being yeah. one of them. And the fact that you only went once says a lot about who you are and how that you absorbed it and owned it because that's really hard to do. So kudos to you for that, dude. That's, it's a really hard thing to to accept, right? Wow! Well, and, and, and you did that, so I was, I was those very are kind. Those are kind words, and gracious words of you. But um, yeah, I, and I'm glad that moment moved you because it's a moment that obviously moved me deeply, and yeah. and will stick with me forever. Because that smile came because I was in, I was I was able at that point to to not be happy that I was there or that I had made certain decisions or like even the place where like still, if you'd asked me on that day, if you can snap your fingers and make this all different, I would have taken it. But what I was beginning to understand 
was that A, that's not how life works. So what's the point? But like, I was beginning to understand the power of radical acceptance. I was saying like, all I can do is be as authentic as I possibly can and embrace that. In fact, accept it and say, well, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be and be honest about it. Not try to separate myself, not try to say these people are different or these people are worse, but I am here. This is true. Yeah. And why am I here? Because I'm needing to get sober. That, yeah. that, that's what's happening with my two friends and we're clearly misfits in this little community <laughs> and it feels <Yeah>. fantastic. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think I, 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 I'll never forget the laugh, hearing them laugh, you know, yeah. behind me just walking off and feeling like that was the, that was when I felt like, and I would have dark days after that. Oh, sure. I'm sure. But that, that there was, there was, uh, there was still life left, right? This thing wasn't over. And yeah. it, it, um, there was hope. I was reminded yeah. again, there was hope. I think it was for me, it was the, there's always a discussion between what's the difference between happiness and joy. Mm. And that is joy. That was a joyful moment, right? Not just for you, but for your friends. And I think that, because we always talk about being happy, you know, it makes you happy if, you know, you get a pay raise or you get happy if you get a new job or, you know, whatever. Those are things are great, but there's a big difference between happiness and joy. And I think that for me is what that resonated because it, it was that spiritual moment, you know, where you remember it forever, you chronicled it in a book. Um, and then from that moment on again, and that's another thing too, obviously, where as a therapist and as someone who is a co-sufferer, we both know that those moments will happen again, they will, right? Um, and so I think what I've learned a lot with my homework is that you will have these storms, you know, that are on the horizon and you know they're going to hit you. But if you focus on the storm that's 100 miles away instead of the sunlight that's on your face at this point, right, then you're missing the good before the bad happens. So, and then when the bad happens, if you know it's coming, you can prepare for it a little more. And you yeah, can, that's right. You can go yeah, so much. It. Yeah, and then get through it. You'd be prepared. So much of the work, and you know, because you've done the work in therapy is, you know, those who battle depression tend to ruminate on the past, right? And so they, they replay, right, the past over and over and over again. And those who tend to suffer more with anxiety, right, trip on the future. It's like constant catastrophizing, like where yeah. in the reality is both of those things take us out of the only actual existence that we have, which is the present. That's, yep. that's, that's all we have, right? We're not in the past. We don't know if we're even going to have a future. Correct. But both of those you know, fixating on either one, rob us of this moment. And it's in this moment, right, where we can experience both happiness and joy. And the, the, the difference or uh, w- one difference in the way that I think about them is happiness has a lot to do with external circumstances. Like you Correct. mentioned, like someone could send me, you know, hey, I'm, you know, here's your new job offer or whatever it is, right. That you get, or you write something you're really proud of and what, what, whatever, right. And the dopamine lights up joy, right. Which is more lasting is, has to do so much more with the narrative that we have about our lives. Right. And, And what we give away so much is we think that joy is dependent on these external circumstances. And if things would just go the right way, 
then maybe somehow I could find some lasting joy and peace. And the reality is only ourselves actually can give ourselves permission to have that. And we have that infinite power to do that. We can literally choose it regardless of what the circumstances are. And if we do that repeatedly, we can access the, that, that joy, even on the days when there's very little happiness going yeah. on around us or with the circumstances. Our joy does not become dependent on the external circumstance. That locus of control resides right here inside. And we give that power away. We give that power away. And so much of therapy, the work that I do is helping people regain that power. That's great. And I love that you said that too, because catastrophizing was a word that I didn't know until therapy. Yeah. <laughs> so that when you when I read that in your book, I'm like, yep, he's a therapist. So <laughs> because my therapist would say that to me, you know, we I think you even touched on it as far as if you're in poor mental health, you can take a common cold and think you have cancer, right? It's like your brain just starts to run. Um, I always make jokes about WebMD. Uh, because if you're really feeling bad and you have some kind of symptom, <laughs> you know, don't go there, man. Because now you have it, and then you start to manifest symptoms <laughs> that are very similar to the disease that you just looked up. And then I, I, I've sworn I'd had lupus a couple times and ALS, and you know, all these other like horrible maladies. And I was like, oh god, I, I'm screwed, and my brain just going crazy. And so I have to, you know, I suffer from episodic depression, but chronic anxiety. And so okay. I've had it since I was a little kid, and my mom who I guess to best encapsulate her anxiety. My mom is visualize a squirrel on meth. <laughs> That's my mom. That's <laughs> just, your mom? just oh, just constant energy ping-ponging back and forth doing 10 duties in the house. She'll fold three things of laundry, you know, a little wash rag here, and then she'll run to the kitchen and do something else. And then she'll run back to the laundry. And then she'll run downstairs and do something with the cat. And, and I'm like, mom, you, you, you've been working on that laundry pile for seven years. I mean, like it's, it's, it's been there for a week. Um, and she laughs. And even when I'm in a really like terrible position, sometimes more so anx- anxious than depressed. Cause when I'm depressed, I don't want to talk to anybody, mm, right. but when I'm anxious, sometimes I'll call my mom and I'm like, hi, mom. She's like, hi, honey, how are you? And I'm like, I'm a mess. And I just, I just, I just wanted to call and thank you again for all this anxiety. <laughs> and she laughs and then we hug it out on the phone. And then she says, so what's going on? And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just obsessing about stupid stuff. And I just needed to call you and, and. I needed my mommy's love today, you know, and then she'll, oh, Joe, you should come home and see your old mom. You know, I'm like, well, I'd love to right now. I just can't because of COVID. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all of those things. And getting back to your initial point is, is being present, right? I think yeah. specifically as someone, as a man of faith, um, I was born and raised in the Catholic church. So I have yeah. a lot of reverence uh, for religion in general. I don't practice it. Um, but as I share with my mom, uh, I live with the tenets, uh, that she taught me and she's a very strong practicing Catholic, um, spends a lot of time in church now on the bingo committee on the funeral committee. Yeah. Um, right. And you know, my mom and her friends, I think are a perfect example of why I like religion. It's a community of people, um, that love one another and they, uh, they have God as a central point, right? And they're... You know, mass is meditation. It's one of those things where I didn't understand that when I was young. Yeah. Um, as I got older, I mean, I even sent you some of that, um, some of my book about yeah. my it. first episodic depression and what took place. And my friend, Kimmy, um, 
said to me, like, you have, you have something called episodic depression. It's not, you know, MDD, it's not major depressive disorder, but it sounds bad and you need to get some help. Mm -hmm. And she told, she's sent me to a place called Spirit Rock, which is a meditation center here in uh, Northern California. It's about 30 minutes north of San Francisco, Golden Gate Bridge. And it's just this beautiful utopia out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, beautiful inlaid wood and orange pillows and <laughs> all these really happy people in the lotus position. And I remember getting there and I was just like, oh my God, I can't do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's too quiet. I'm going to kill myself. I can't <laughs> handle this. And, and so it was, it, it did lead me, however, to reading, rereading the Bible, huh. uh, reading the Tipitaka, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the Quran, nice. and then not in this. I didn't, you know, to be clear, it wasn't. I wasn't reading Arabic. I wasn't reading Sanskrit. I, I was reading translations. Sure, um, but all of those, and it, I spent months wrapped around these beautiful texts mm. because I was trying for the first time to look for heroes that had uh. nothing to do with the business world. Right? It was. Uh. I was 30 when this first happened and um, this was after my dad embezzled all my money and and uh, I didn't know how to deal with that. I got evicted from my home and I had no job because we were in business together and oh. I was just like, oh, wow. And so once you lose touch with your job, your title, your, you know, I, I had no place to live anymore. Um, I didn't know what I was, right? And so I wasn't present. I was depressed in the sense that I was looking back at all the bad decisions I'd made to get where I am. And then I was completely anxious about where I was going. I'm like, sure. where am I going to go? Like, what am I going to do? Um, I'm 30 years old. I'm six figures in debt. I'm being evicted from my home. I have no job. I have no paycheck. I owe all my friends and family, all this money that I borrowed from them to start this business. <clears throat> and so reading these texts was a way to connect to something bigger than myself mm. for the first time. Mm. And, it, and that's why I sent it to you because when I went and talked to my friend Kimmy, I said something out loud that I shared in my memoir that you actually have in your book with one of your patients who talked about, she said, I wish I had cancer uh, because yeah. these people could see it yep. and, and then it, I could see it. I could touch it. I could treat it. Um, and I said that to my friend Kimmy. Really? And I said, God, I wish I had cancer right now. And she said, Oh, babe, you really are a mess. And I mm. said, yeah, I am. And that was exactly that reason. It was because I didn't understand what was going on. Oh, and by the way, this just happened the other night. I never thought I was depressed because I was never suicidal. Oh. So I just assumed that if you don't have suicidal ideation, then it's not depression. It's just You don't melancholy. qualify? Yeah, you're not, yeah, you're not, not, bad you're enough. not good enough. <laughs> Right, right. You're not, not good, good enough, enough depressive. Enough. Yeah, you you aren't even close to bad enough. But you know, that's that's something I wanted to talk with you about too, because you talked about that. You've talked about admitting to your wife hysterically that you understand for the first time why people want to kill themselves. Yeah, and yeah. you talk about it in an, a couple of different places in the book. But have you ever been suicidal, or is I it just? You're just, you're okay with dying, <laughs> right? Mm, there's a big yeah, difference. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would say that I've experienced suicidal ideation, which is um, imagining uh, killing yourself. Yeah. 
and um, experiencing as you imagine that the feelings of relief. Correct. And so um, there were times with me where I couldn't see um, a future. Right. And that's what begins to happen with depression or anxiety, any kind of mental illness. When people begin to, um, romanticize death, essentially, is this, this idea is like, well, this pain is so, this pain is so great and so relenting and, um, and so intangible, like you were expressing when you're saying, I just wish it was cancer. So at least it could just be like more concrete because then there's maybe an actual like defined diagnosis a yeah. prognosis that that seems to be more rooted in data yeah um this or you know a timeline i think that's one of the biggest issues people struggle with with mental really issues that we they can't offer these clear timelines yeah and so i got to the point where it's like if this is what life is going to be like and i don't see a solution or a, a way out i i can't live like I can't yeah. live like this. And so what began to happen for me, I think a lot of people, we know this from talking to suicide survivors, people who attempt and survive, is that oftentimes it begins with suicide is an option. It just comes on the table as like, well, I could die. And then as the pain grows worse, it becomes um, a good option. Then it's like, okay, you know, if I were to do this, then I could achieve oblivion and that is preferable, right? To what I'm, to what I'm achieving. And then those who eventually attempt, oftentimes they'll say, I progressed from an option to a good option to the only option. And so when they die by suicide, at least for those who survive and we've talked to, they'll say it wasn't so much about ending life as it was about ending pain the pain yeah there was nothing was working and the pain was simply too great and that's why i find it so important the way that we talk about this and i mentioned this in the book you know using the language of like people don't commit suicide because that implies a great deal of volition and it also implies a very negative, you know, people commit murder or I commit, you know, perjury right. or, or whatever it might be. But people die by suicide. Their depression kills them, right? Mental illness yeah. kills them. And, you know, the suicide is the way that the death manifests itself. But it's recognizing that, sure, in some suicides, is there more volition than in others? Absolutely. This isn't black or white. but that language at least at least gives space for the reality that these are a confluence of factors at play, right? When people die. And I just think that's really important. Um, and yeah, again, I, in, it's, it's, I find it embarrassing um, still and shameful. Like when you ask me that question, I don't want to answer it. Honestly, my instinct is to say no. And I say that in the book, I think a friend you asked do. me, you my instinct was that. to lie. Yeah. And um, because it's so suicide is still so highly um, stigmatized that I don't want to even be thought of as a person who had, who has considered it. But the reality is, I have. So it's so it's true, right? 
And we're living in a time in which suicide is now the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. It's the second leading cause of death amongst young people. It's a public health crisis. And because we know from people who do survive their attempts, we know that they often vacillate right up until the very moment that they attempt. So that indicates that these are deaths that we can do something about. We can't prevent all of them, but with more normalizing this discussion, talking about what to look for, saying, like taking down the stigma of being able to say, like, I have thought about this, right? Yeah. There's a lot of, there are a lot of lives that can be saved. A lot. I agree. And I I think that part of the suicide moniker committing, you know, my family's had to work around these words. And I I don't know if I shared with you or not, my little brother died by suicide in 2007. And I found him in my house um, and he inhaled, uh, it's called inhaling, it's uh, huffing, excuse me. And uh, he was a drug addict and an alcoholic for decades. But after, you know, we found him and the paramedics came in and tried to save his life and the coroner came in and they had the police there and everything else because they thought, I was in San Francisco, I live here. And I just got back from a motorcycle ride and I found him. And so I was in so much shock that I couldn't function. I couldn't really talk to the police and I didn't really talk to the paramedics. And um, I remember I called my brother, Paul, who was in Hawaii coaching. He was a gymnastics coach while he was in law school. And I said, Stevie's dead, you know? And he said, oh, Jesus. And I said, I need you to call mom. You know, I, I can't. I can't, right? I can't handle it. And he said, I got it. I got this, Joe. And he said, call Kimmy. And I love you. And this isn't your fault. Mm-hmm. Which are such neat things to say because it was, you know, like any family member, what could I have done different? Blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, he drowned. That's what the coroner said, you know, because he was in the tub. And we didn't do an autopsy because my mom just didn't want to. It was too too, tra- too traumatic for her. And so then I started going to therapy and talking about that exact thing, which is, you know, what is, did my brother kill himself? And my therapist is like, yeah, <laughs> he did. It's, it's indirect suicide at the very least. And I was like, what is that? Oh, well, you know, it's behaviors that, uh, consistent behavior that pushes you towards the edge over and over and over and over and eventually you're going to die. And he'd had four DUIs and he'd been in and out of jail and he, he, he actually was impressive how much he could absorb as yeah. far as alcohol yeah. and drugs. It just blew my mind sometimes. Um, but we didn't admit it as a family. And I still think to this day, if my mom hears any of these podcasts, she would get mad at me. Really? Yeah. And say, you know, he, we don't know that he wanted to kill himself. And I was like, you're right, mom. We don't. But I've talked to him numerous times that he wanted out. He didn't want to be here. He hated himself. He had no self-love. Um, and so it was, it's, that's a big part of the problem. And, and that's why I was really glad you addressed it. Not only you specifically, you know, as a therapist, as a priest, as a co-sufferer, it's hard for everybody to talk about, right? And that's a big part of the reason I started this podcast and wrote my book is I just, I want to get rid of the stigma and I also believe in part because of our religion, 
you know, it's a sin to oh. commit suicide, right? So that's another big piece to being a Catholic. And I don't, you mentioned it too. You actually have a piece in your book called, is it a sin? You know, is suicide a sin? And I was surprised actually, because I'm not a Christian, but I understand Christianity, um, that as a group, it's still pretty stigmatized, correct? Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah. It, it is so highly stigmatized still. I mean, I, I was surprised in my adulthood when you talk to re- people who you would kind of perceive as being relatively, you know, sophisticated, you know, progressive, yeah. but people of faith, and you'd get to that issue and they'd be like, oh, yeah, I mean, of course it's a sin. That's like the ultimate rejection of, of God. God, right? I mean, yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're rejecting the thing, right, that, that is most sacred that's been given to you, you know, the breath in your lungs, like your, right. your life. And like on some level, like, right, like I can understand why so many, why that's an easy thing for people to believe because fundamentally we all kind of understand, yeah, what, what is most precious? Like, well, hum, human life, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, sure, right? That's why we take murder like really seriously, right? You don't have the right to go and kill another person, right? In most, you know, scenarios. Right. Or whatever. Um, but to me, that is so reductionistic. It does not take into account how difficult it is to live, how horrible it can be. And I'm always very surprised by it because when you actually look, you mentioned uh, enveloping yourself in sacred text earlier is when you went to Spirit Rock and how that was different for you when you were searching for heroes outside of the business world. If you look at the at the text like of the Bible, for instance, both yeah. in the Hebrew Bible or you know the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is language of utter despair. Uh, you read all through the Psalms and the psalmist repeatedly talks about wanting to die. The death would be better. Uh, Job at one point in the Old Testament begs God to kill him, right? Yeah. There's suicidal ideation. Jesus himself, the night before he dies on his lips, he's like, I'm grieved to the point of death. Like, yeah. I, I feel like I just want to freaking, I want out of here so bad. Like, um, uh, I, you know, kill me essentially that, yeah. that kind of idea. Like I need to escape. Like I, I'm about to die. I feel like I'm going to die or maybe I should die. And that's what's, to me, that's the emotion, right? That, that, that's being expressed there. And so I find there actually to be permission, permission. If you take those texts to be divine, yeah. you know, so if Christians are saying, this is what God gave us to help us understand God or the world or our lives. You have it in them. You have it there, right? So yeah. somehow we, we've just rushed past that. And yeah, we, we've stigmatized it to such a degree. I think I mentioned in the book that for the longest time, the Catholic Church would not even bury a person no, who died won't. by suicide, right? Yeah. I think that was a big part for my family, you know. Is that what happened with your brother? No, I mean, we had a Catholic ceremony, but it, I don't know if, if they would have allowed it. You know? mm, if it and was a, definitively a suicide? Well, no. I mean, because that's the, you know, how you don't know. There was no note, you know, right. we didn't. He didn't hang himself. It wasn't, you know, it was, it was just when you huff, 22% of people who do it the first time die. So at the very Ah. best, it it was Russian roulette, right? There was, and that's kind of what I had to sort out with my therapist is like, he didn't kill himself. She said, I'm not saying he did. (laughs) I'm just saying you need to absorb this as a family. 
because it's part of your healing, mm-hmm. right? And I was like, okay. And she said, it's, it's indirect suicide, Joey. I was like, okay. And then when I talk to people and I've been interviewed on a podcast just like you lately about my book, it's still hard for me to even talk about that way yeah. because it's just, I feel bad for him because if he's up in heaven and he says, dude, I didn't kill myself. I was, I did that stupid huffing thing and then it, I passed out and fell forward. And so I didn't, I didn't want to do that. And I would never do that to you, Joe. You know, these are all the things going on in my head. Um, and I always used to make jokes with him when he tell me he wanted out and I'd hug him and I'd tell him, I love you. And I said, you'll get through this. And I said, by the way, you can't off yourself because then I have to deal with our little mom. And I said, and then I'll go, I will dig you up and beat the shit out of you, you know? And he laughed. He's like, okay. And so it was, we had, I have this whole like history of talking with my little brother about his, you know, he was bipolar. So he was an okay. absolute mess. And, and you did a very good job of kind of discussing the gradations of, you know, psychotherapy based on abuse as a kid. And obviously there's depression and anxiety, but then there's, you know, schizophrenia and there's bipolar and there's things where you hear voices, <laughs> right? And you actually need medication to, resolve these. This is not, my little brother could have done what I did. Um, I spent eight years on a couch with a clinical psychologist who understood that my father, who was a malignant narcissist, did really bad things to me and my brothers. Mm-hmm. And so we all developed, my older brother suffers from chronic depression. He's on heavy Zoloft. He's been miserable for 20 years. And it's, it saddens me every day because when I come out of the hole, you know, most, I think the longest one I've had recently is six weeks. Six weeks. And I come out and it's like, oh yeah. Cause you like the sun, you're like, oh my God, the sun. I love the sun. And I like noise again. And I like people. And this is so cool. And then my brother's been in that hole for 20 years. And wow. so it's one of those things where you're just like, oh God, you know, how, how do we get through this? And for Paul and Stevie, I, I was, I think, lucky in that I don't have that far end of the MDD side. Yeah. And I didn't have bipolar and I didn't have schizophrenia. Yeah. And, and the medication that he was needing was impossible because every time the clinical folks tried to medicate him and find the right cocktail, it was almost irrelevant because of the amount of alcohol he poured down. Yeah, right. So you can't, you can't help someone that is no. that drunk all the time because you don't know if the meds are working, right? You can't get a baseline. Uh, yeah. No, no. And, and that was really frustrating for my mom too, because they said the same thing when we took him in, you know, do you hear voices? And he's like, no, I don't hear voices. Do you want to kill yourself? Yes. Well, come back when you hear voices. <laughs> and my mom was like, what do you mean? Come back when you hear voices? He's going to kill himself. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that is a huge, you know, we don't need, we don't need to dive into that, but I mean, that's the mental health infrastructure, right? The, there is no buttress for people in need at scale, right? No. We just don't, as a group, we don't have that. Um, we don't. And I think that's, you know, that's part of what you talked about now in times of COVID, anxiety and depression, you know, there's a tsunami of that coming at us as we speak. A tsunami. Uh, and you talked about, there's a piece of your book where you talked about in the 30s and 40s where, children were isolated and they actually died of sadness. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that, that was a piece that was, I don't know if they're orphans. I can't remember the part, but it was, yeah, it was an orphanage. Yeah. And, and that is isolation. 
right? And right. then one of the, and then a lot of the scientists that came out of that study were talking about how powerful community is, and how powerful you you can't isolate, right? You cannot be by yourself in these circumstances because it gets worse. Your brain continues to attack you. Um, I think one of your patients described as as uh, gremlins, <laughs> gremlins <laughs> that would never stop talking, right? And I I remember laughing too because I've always had it as a merry-go-round. So like, you know, the horses and, and for me, I have anxiety and depression sitting right next to each other, flipping me off. So like, as it comes around, like, dun, 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 yeah. it's like, Hey, Joey, <laughs> like, Oh, thanks dude. And it's, it's just, it, it, it's, it, I hate that, but it is that loop. Cause you've talked about the loop in your book too, where all of the words, you know, like encasing bell jars and fogs and tunnels and all the stuff that we read about, you know, as a depressionary uh, norm, it's like it's all the same. So, like every time someone talks about it, it's you and I've had three other guests now, uh, and we've talked about this. Everyone has the same thing, uh, and that's the that's the neat thing, actually, because then yeah. you're kind of like, "Hey, dude!" I'm like, <laughs> "Yes, <laughs> we're partners, right?" Yes, we get the joke. We get the joke. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I and I think that's what I was saying. You know, there can be some camaraderie in this, like I was saying with, yeah. the, with the the co-suffering because. Like we've seen um, with you know sexual assault in the past few years, there, there's there two words. Me too, are yeah. so incredibly powerful they were. because this depression and anxiety. You know, one of the really consistent thoughts that people have the pattern is that like they are alone Correct. and they feel worse than anyone's ever felt. And so just to hear other people say, "No, no, no," like I've felt it too, right? Yeah. reminds us right that that when we want to isolate right that is only going to make things worse we we were simply not designed to live in isolation correct human beings correct. are just not that we didn't evolve that way no. that's not that's not how we've ever set up any sort of communal system it's always right together people that's just the healthiest way like in those kiddos that's how we learned about you know attachment theory yeah. If you just feed a child and keep a child warm and dry and never touch the child, they will not develop will. appropriately and they no. might die. They might die. Yeah. And, and that's touch. That's anecdotal for, for my family. My older brother, as I mentioned, who's a you know, is a mess. I have my two little boys now, and so I've invited him to be a huge part of our family. He's here three to four days a week. He sleeps oh, over on Saturday oh. nights with the kids. They worship him because he just adores them and he teaches them. He's a law professor and so he's very academic and he likes to teach. He's teaching their periodic tables as an example right now. And um, so he gets, he gets to be here, right? And I've watched him suffer for so many years and I've, I've been worried about losing my other brother for decades. So mm -hmm. the fact that he now has my kids as a salvo mm -hmm. and he says they, that they almost pierce the bubble. And, really, and to your point too, like I am happy that I, I suffer from episodic depression because I can then relate to my brother. Mm. I can sit down with him and say, "Dude, you know, I had my brain collapsed a couple weeks ago, only for a day, but it took two days to kind of come out of it. It was almost yeah. like I had electric shock therapy. It was so bad. And when it happens, it's like there's this bubble, like a plastic bubble, just comes over me, and I can't touch." emotion anymore. There's no vitality. And even my little kids, when they see it, 
I mean, like, guys, daddy has a headache, and I have to go lay down, and I have to be in the dark, and I have to just check out. And and I can hear him. I love you, daddy. I love you. But it gets quieter. I love you, daddy. Because it's almost like they're in this bubble, and I can't mm. touch them, and I can't feel that. And and that's, you know, that's scary <laughs> when you're in that place. And I think that the fact that, you know, you wrote something about it as as a pastor, as a therapist, as a co-sufferer, I think is so powerful because it gives others the right to say, oh my God, I'm not alone. And you sprinkle that in your book a lot. Mm-hmm. You are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. And I think that was very neat um, to read because it does remind the reader that, oh, okay, that's that's really key. And, you know, those pieces are, I think, I mean, in the zeitgeist, right? We have to talk about this. Um, you talked about Harry, Prince Harry, yeah. right? Yeah. And talk about timing, right? So you talked Good about Prince Harry gracious. in 2017, where he talked about his own mental health and said that he never sits with it. He yeah. doesn't think about his mom because what good is it going to do? And then when he suffers the most, he just buries himself. And then like anyone who is suffering, obviously he had some moments in public yeah. where he was drunk and, and cause he's a kid, you know, young yeah. man anyway. Um, and he never talked about it. And I can't even imagine the oppression from a Royal family who's putting on all of these airs, you know, for <laughs> centuries that, Hey, you can't, you can't come out and talk about that. No. And then now Megan comes out <laughs> and she's like, Hey, by the way, I wanted out. Yeah. Like I didn't want to be here and I lived every little girl's dream, right? Mm-hmm. The big ceremony and the big dress and the, the horses and the, you know, and the Doric columns and the king and the queen. And you're like, okay. All of it. And that to me, I don't know if you watched the interview. I'm sure you did. I did. Yeah. yeah. I just it, finished it last night. It just blew me away in the sense that she's very brave. He's very brave. brave. Right. To walk away from the monarchy, if you will. And then yeah. talk about this. And there's two things I want to discuss with you on this. But the first is that I think when people of status and privilege come out and talk about this, it has so much more affect. It really wakes people up because people can't possibly see someone in that environment as depressed. Right. They have, they have everything. They have everything. They have money, power, fame, the most beautiful clothes, the most, you know, the stuff that we know both of us isn't important, <laughs> right? No. If, as long as you can feed yourself and you got a place and there's no rain coming in your head, you're good. You're good. But she was brave and wonderful and so well-spoken and she was. And that's the first piece I want you to t- comment on. And then the second is the vitriol that you're seeing now coming at her. And that's another thing that scares, scares me about putting the book out and scares me about these, these podcasts even going. And I'm putting them out, by the way. <laughs> like, yeah, you're you know, doing I'm, it. I'm sharing it, but it, it's, I'm going to get attacked. And I know that, mm. but it bugs me because it's just as a culture. And I have friends online. Even this morning, before I jumped on the show with you, I was and I that are making fun of her and saying that she's you know not a good person and that she's just you know going for press and 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 why doesn't why do we care about Meghan Markle? Who is she? I mean, just like terrible things. And then obviously it gets worse. Which you yeah. know, if you jump on Twitter, I'm sure you can see that she's the Antichrist and somehow she's, she's right. you know done yeah something well. So I mean, 
What are your thoughts on that, on Megan's conversation and her place in the world and how important that was as a mental health expert? Yeah, I, I think it was unbelievably important because for your first, to your first question, it's incredibly brave. Mm-hmm. And when people of power, right, and, and wealth speak to these issues, it pierces through the lie that we as a culture tell ourselves, which is if you can attain a certain yes. status level, right, yep. you will be... Um, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, you, will be, you will get the vaccine, so to speak, right. that will protect right. you from, right. from any kind of actual travesty. Right, particularly yeah. mental illness. How could you possibly uh, be depressed or be riddled with any kind of any kind of emotional or psychological distress when you have what we all deem as like ultimate power? So right. what it does is it it, it 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 shoots right through that and gives credence to no. Um, there are lots of factors at play here, some of which are, are biological. And so I don't yeah. care who you are, and I don't care what level of success or or what kind of relationships you achieve you might struggle with this, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, we want to we, we want to categorize because we've stigmatized this and we want to say mental illness is for a certain kind of people and I'm not going to be one of them, right? And I, if I can work hard enough over here, I'll never have to deal with that. Well, Meghan Markle gets up and says, I literally wanted to die. Well, that, that helps blow up that lie, right? Yeah. And that makes people feel very uncomfortable. But what's more important than making feel people uncomfortable it's everyone who's sitting there watching that who has felt that way and feels terrified to say anything it just got a little less scary yeah Uh, and for some people it got a whole lot less scary i guarantee there are people who are already in therapy because of that interview or have already returned that phone call to their doctor or have said to their spouse i need help I, i mean i guarantee it and so, like, I have chills all over my body. I agree with you 100%. I, I was just so happy to watch it. So happy to watch it. And I'm so um, sorry for her suffering, and I would never yeah. wish it upon her. But she is, one of, she is one of us, and her willingness to identify as one of us will help others of us get help. It's the same re I mean, it's the primary reason I wrote the book and it, it, because I thought, well, whatever platform I can have, right. Cause I can't, yeah. I can only see so many people, uh, you know, right. a day yeah. and I'm not Megan Markle, but maybe if I can take some of this information and, and put it in a, in a medium where other people who I don't have access to could have access to it. Right. That's my part. She has chosen, right to use her platform in that way. And it will literally right, save lives. The, the thing about the criticism, the vitriol that makes me so angry, and I'm sure you've seen this sentiment online, is you know, when people criticize her or question the veracity of her testimony, I literally said to my wife last night, I said, you know what? Pretend for a second she's making up this whole thing. I would still be okay with it because of the good that it's doing, right? So even like, pretend, right. she, pretend she's it's making a really up. really good point. Yeah, I'd be like, hey, yeah. glad you did it. Thanks. Thanks for choosing this narrative. Uh, I, I don't know, because you're, you're still saving lives. It's not the point. Like when people say, who cares about Meghan Markle? Like that doesn't even make sense to me. You obviously, no, pe- 
People care, like they care. She's mega, you know, people care about whatever they care about. But what I care about is when you're criticizing her, just like the people have said online, like she, she is not going to hear it. She doesn't care. But your friends, your family, they see it. And your friends and your family struggle with these things and you don't know it. And you're literally making it harder for them to cope. Yep. Yeah. And I think that for me, it, it brought up Robin Williams' death hit me really hard. Mm. And I don't know specifically why. I was on vacation with my family, um, my whole family, my wife and her sisters and their kids and her parents and all of that. And I had to fly out for a couple of days on a business trip. And he killed himself the night before I flew out. And I saw all the same thing on Facebook. And so I wasn't sleeping well. And it was probably two in the morning. And, you know, people were calling him a coward and saying yeah. how selfish he is because, you know, obviously he has everything, fame and fortune. And, you know, he's funny. And, you know, how could, how could he do this to his kids? And, you know, all this stuff. And I just went off. That's <laughs> like the first time I, I remember just sharing about my little brother. And I said, for those of you who haven't dealt with suicide, you need to just shut up. Yeah. That's, and that's how kind of how I started. And then I said, you know, I found my little brother dead from depression. This is how I felt. This is what happened to my family. And all y'all out here pontificating about how selfish he is and how awful he is don't understand what people are going through when they're depressed. Mm. And then as we found out later with Robin Williams, he had, you know, a diagnosis that took, took him out. He was like, I, yeah. if I can't exercise, <laughs> I'm done, right? And he was a former Parkinson's Louis something. I can't remember the name. I always forget um, the name of it too. Yes. It was degenerative. Brain degeneration. Yeah, he was going to fall apart physically. And then after, and, and I don't know if you exercise, but I have to exercise. Yeah, have to. Because if I don't, then you, you run. You've run since you were 18. I remember that. Um, I mountain bike and I lift weights because it's here. It's, <laughs> I have to. Oh yeah, the brain starts to, <laughs> it just starts gobbling me up. And so when he said, okay, yeah, I'm going to be in a wheelchair and I can't exercise anymore. That means my brain will eat me alive and I can't do anything about it. Yeah. So that level of understanding for me was, it just hit me like a bat in mm. the head. I was just like, oh my God. And I think what was so painful is that it's the celebrity issue. You know, we had Anthony Bourdain, you know, recently and Kate Spade, Chris Cornell, all these wonderful people who, again, had everything. Right. And I think that's an even bigger problem because to your point is I haven't achieved that level of success financially. I'm not, you know, a centimillionaire and I'm not a rock star, but I don't have to worry about money anymore. My wife and I are financially fortunate and it's fine. I live in the city I choose to live in and the home I choose to live in and I have yeah. healthy little kids. That doesn't mean, if anything, <laughs> it's almost worse when you achieve or when you arrive or you make it, now you're like, so why am I still leaning forward? Right. What why, else? why isn't this gone now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, this, I thought this anxiety was in part a kick in the pants to, to get me to, to that achieve point. things. Yeah. To, well, and this is part of the society culture too, in the, in the sense of how do we analyze things? When you graduate from high school, what's the first question people ask? We're going to college. Exactly. When you graduate from college, what's the first question they yeah. ask? On day one. Yeah, where's your job? Right. And then you yeah. get a job and they're like, when are you getting promoted? 
And then when you get promoted, so when are you going to settle down? Right. And then, and then you're like, okay. And then I got engaged at your engagement party. When's the big day? Wedding day. When the baby's coming. Right. And then, then you buy the house. And then when's the bigger house? And then it's when you get in the dream house. Uh, Right. And I've watched this with my mom and her friends because just Minnesota staples, wonderful people, hard workers, IBM, the clinic, all of that. They moved into the dream house at 65 or whatever it was, and it took them two years to build, and it's gorgeous. And then you see them, you go visit some other friends of mine, and you see them in the senior facility, and you're like, what What happened to the dream house? Yeah, where's the dream house? Oh, well, Bob fell, and he broke his hip, so... They had steps, and so we had to move because we can't get Bob up the steps anymore. And, and we're, we're too far from the hospital. And so you're like, oh, my God. So this is the bag of, of crap that we've been telling everyone our whole life. Like, hey, this is, this is, this is the, the path you need to follow to be successful mm-hmm. and happy. And it just doesn't work, right? Yeah. And I think that that's the piece for me is that we just have to unplug all these societal constructs that's about right. what happiness is, what joy is, what success looks like right Mm -hmm. and and then because of if we can actually deconstruct these things we can then start to move into okay let's look at we're all human we all suffer from these things and i think that the fact that you and i can connect on this level because we both wrote a book about our own struggles is exactly what i'm talking about right where where more people can start to connect and my goal specific and i think it's probably similar to yours is that my podcast is called Laugh Your Cry Out because the hope is that if people can listen to this, laugh at themselves, like I laugh at myself, um, we can then start to laugh with one another mm. instead of at one another, right? Mm. Because that's, then we all heal together. And if you can, if you can kind of adopt the Larry David approach, <laughs> right? To your anxiety. <laughs> like yeah. what did he what did he do with it? Well, he he started a sitcom. <laughs> yeah. Right. And he personified himself through a, a character named George Costanza. Yeah. And it was brilliant. And so, like, my book, if and when you decide to read it, it Oh, I can't it, wait to read it. It's me making fun of myself. Okay. For about the last 20 chapters. I mean, the first four are pretty heavy because I got my little brother in there and my dad's, you know, crazy behavior and all that. But then I just start to manifest all these terrible insecurities. Like I get my first job and I have to buy suits that are way too expensive because I had to look better than everyone else because I was mm-hmm. that pathetic. And I had to buy a German car because I was that insecure. And so it's like I, I'm making fun of myself the whole way. And so the one thing I have in my arsenal when I'm mocked, which I will be <laughs> online, I'll be like, I wrote a book <laughs> called Joey Somebody the life and times of a recovering douchebag. Okay. This is not a book to say that I'm trying to be your senator. Right. 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 I need you to criticize me for I'm criticizing me. Right? I'm, I'm doing it. Right. <laughs> I got that. Like, let's yeah. just, let's deal with that. And I, I think you, you know, trying to destigmatize what was going on with your book specifically as a therapist. And as I learned, or maybe I just relearned how difficult it is to be depressed in a church environment. Like all yeah. those pieces that you helped to destigmatize, yeah. I think is fantastic. And uh, Thank you. again, dude, I, uh, I know you probably have to get going, but I really appreciate your time. Oh, by the way, mm-hmm. one thing I wanted to mention, Anne Hathaway. You wrote about the Anne Hathaway oh. story. Yeah, 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 that show. Yeah, did you watch it? Oh, did yeah. you? Okay, 
So do you know who that story is about? No. It's a woman named Terry Chaney, and she's a Beverly Hills entertainment lawyer in LA. And she's written three memoirs. So you should check those out. Um, oh, I had no idea. Yeah. It's, I mean, it wasn't, it was based on her. So it based on, right? It wasn't, it's yeah, they did a whole bunch of different stuff with it. But I actually invited Terry Chaney on this show. And so she is on her book tour with her recent, her recent book. Um, it's called Owner's Manual Touched with Fire. Or no, it's Modern Madness. An owner's manual. That was her second book. Her okay. first book was called Manic. And then her other one was Touched with Fire. It was about her childhood with bipolar. Wow. So a couple things. Number one, she's a fantastic writer. Yeah. <laughs> Just awesome writer, great storyteller. I mean, I think it's part you lawyers know how to write. There's no question. Wow. I think because you guys spend so much time in school um, drafting and redrafting. Uh, and, and taking a bunch of copious information and synthesizing it down, you know, you, you did a good job with that too. But Thank she, you. she wrote three memoirs that I think you really enjoy. Oh, um, so check her out because that's her story. I, Thanks for I telling me. I, I yeah. didn't know. Yeah. And, and she's like one of my heroes. I, she laughs at herself a lot in her books. Good. And I, I will get her on the show. I'll just continue to poke her. <laughs> like, hey, Terry, I know you, I know you're a big star, but you know, come and talk with me because she's an exact person like yourself, I'm trying to get as many people as I can who have written memoirs, you know, to come in and talk um, because I think that we have that in common as well, right? Uh, so. Man, thank you so much for what you're doing. And I'm so honored and, and touched that you read my book so so closely and, and carefully. Um, that means the world to me. And the fact that you've taken, you know, your time and your courage to share your story and then even through this medium, through the podcast, man, it's life-changing work that you're doing that you don't have to be doing and putting yourself out there. Like, and it's folks like you doing this where we can change this thing. We can yeah. make this culture different for our little boys and the ones that came after them. We can lower the suffering. We can make this a more loving, accepting, open society if That's we choose... True to talk authentically about our lives. So thank you so much for doing it. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.